First, uh, thank you, choir, for the offertory. I mean, I couldn't have planned it better. The focus for today's message is actually on the cross. And they just sung for us the wondrous cross. And uh, yes, for those of you who uh, witnessed the baptism, Pastor Arnold is back. And I, for one, am glad. Yeah, really glad because uh, it means now we have more shoulders to shoulder shoulder the, the burdens and the responsibilities and the privilege and joy of ministry. So good morning again, my beloved uh, family and friends in Christ. And to our friends, I know there are many of visitors here today with us. Uh, well, welcome. As a church, our vision is to glorify God by being a disciple-making church that transforms lives with the gospel and love of Jesus Christ. Last week, we took a short break from our series, The Doctrine of the Church, and turned instead to the Gospel of Mark. Remember, the Gospel of Mark talks mainly about Christ the King, His Kingdom, and the response of discipleship by the King's followers. And last week, from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, we said that God's kingdom has arrived because God's chosen King, Jesus Christ, has come. And the message of this King was, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we ended with the thought that as disciples, Repentance and belief should mark all our lives. This week, we are going to continue to look at the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 27 to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Here, we are actually going to look at another aspect of following Christ. And that is embracing the crown, embracing the cross, embracing the cross before the crown. And before we get into today's message, let us pray in preparation to the hearing of God's word. Let us pray. Father God, you are God who first calls us to yourself while we were far away from you. And you have allowed us to enter your kingdom through the death of your son Jesus on the cross. That in your son Jesus, through the gospel of who Jesus is, what he came to do and teach, we who have rejected you and turned away from you can find forgiveness and pardon. Now we can enter your kingdom and enjoy eternal life under your rule and blessing, spending forever in the joy of, of your presence. I pray that as we look at your Bible this morning, I pray in the words of the psalmist that our hearts not be hardened as we hear your voice today. Help me to be faithful to your word and to communicate it clearly. Help all of us glimpse the beauty of the King, beauty of King Jesus as revealed in Scripture. And then, Lord, enable us to live a life of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and of obedience to the commands of the King. We pray this for our good and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, Amen. I've actually been a member of this church for some 15 years. And just like our friends this morning, who were baptized, just baptized. I too was baptized in 1998. And as I was preparing this message, I remembered my testimony given at my baptism. There were two verses that I talked about. One was from Philippians 1.21, 
which uh, many of the young people who are interns in the church get a year full of. And the other is on a passage we'll be looking at today from Mark 8.35. Mark 8.35. It says in Mark 8.35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And I remember I said something like this. I said something like, living the Christian life is something of a parent paradox. Because to gain my life, I have to lose it. And then being you know, enthusiastic, just being baptized, I asked then for the church to pray for me, to learn to gradually lose my life for Jesus' sake. And guess what? Look at where I am. Look where, where that prayer has gotten me. While the emphasis on this truth is true, but I've learned over the years the other aspect of this truth, that losing is gain. You gain Jesus. Mark told his readers in a passage in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to Mark 9, verse 1, that they are to follow Jesus, the suffering King, for the joy of gaining Christ. So even as we look today at this familiar portion of Scripture, I hope that you look carefully with me. Perhaps you'll get some new insight. So let's look then at today's passage where God tells us Christian to confess Christ, to embrace the cross, and to lose our lives for the sake of gaining Christ. Who do people say I am? Asked Jesus. And this question frames the first eight chapters of the book of Mark. The focus is on who this Jesus is. And the second half of the book of Mark, the second eight chapters of the book of Mark, covers what Jesus came to do. Another way of putting this then, is the first half of the Gospel of Mark tells us Jesus the King, tells us Jesus the King coming with authority. He comes to heal diseases, to cast out demons. He teaches with authority and even has control over nature. He tells us that Jesus is the King coming with authority. And the second half of the Gospel tells us something altogether unexpected that this king actually comes to do. And the turning point comes in today's passage in Mark 8 with Peter's confession of who Jesus is. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can grab your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we'll be slowly working our way through the text. And Mark tells us this in Mark chapter 8, verse 21. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, um, John the Baptist. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ." And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Here we catch up with Jesus as he was traveling with his followers to the villages surrounding the town of Caesarea Philippi. And this region was actually at the border of the land of the Jews and Gentile territory. It's not in the heart of the Jewish uh, uh, country. It's not in the heart of the Jewish uh, land. It was here that as they were walking 
with Jesus, that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? You see, until this point, the people who had witnessed Jesus' miracles and heard his teachings, they were all still trying to figure out who this Jesus is. Even King Herod, the human ruler of the land, had heard of the people's hunches and predictions, as we see in Mark chapter 6, verse 14 and following, as he too was wondering who Jesus is. And similar to what Herod heard, the disciples tell Jesus that the people figure that Jesus was either John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. You see, the people could not deny Jesus' divine power and authority. But they think that Jesus was just a human agent of God. But Jesus, being Jesus, did not allow the answer to stop just there. He presses in on the disciples for the answer. And he asks, but who do you say that I am? Things just got personal. You know, it's okay to give a general consensus and views of the people around them. But Jesus was now asking for the disciples' personal views. They were asked to make a commitment. And Peter, probably representing the disciples, answers, you are the Christ. Christ. For many of us who have grown up in church, grown up hearing Christian lingo, we tend to say certain things quickly without really understanding the full impact. But Christ here, this title is actually loaded with meaning. Loaded with meaning. Christ means anointed one in the Jewish language. And in Jewish understanding, this anointed one is the one that is blessed by God. And this one is often a prophet, a priest, or a king. But during this time, the time of Jesus, because the people of Israel, they were looking for God to send them a military or political leader to free them from the Roman oppressors. They often associated the title Christ with the Davidic king. They expect an anointed king in the line of David to come to rescue them. Amazing. So we see here, Peter, even though he doesn't know it very clearly, he actually acknowledges Jesus as king. He rightly acknowledges Jesus as king. And we see Mark telling us in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus is king. And we have seen it being demonstrated by Jesus' authority in the events before this account. But strangely, instead of allowing the disciples to go everywhere to proclaim this, Jesus strictly charged them, meaning the disciples, to tell no one about him. I mean, why? If I were Jesus and I'm the king, you know, I would say, hey, guys, I'm the king. Would you just go out and proclaim, let people know that I'm really here? I mean, if Jesus was God's chosen king, promised in the Old Testament, wouldn't Jesus want to proclaim this to his people that he had come to rescue them? But the issue was, Jesus wasn't the kind of king the disciples and people thought he was. And he didn't want his disciples to spread a mistaken idea, nor the people to start a rebellion for their king. You see, Jesus is king, but he comes to do something unexpected. 
and he means to accomplish this task that God has assigned him. Jesus is the expected Messiah in the most unexpected manner. Recently, the Norwegian, let me get the name right, Prime Minister Jan, Jan Sotenberg revealed that he had gone undercover as a taxi driver. I'm not sure you actually read the papers or seen the news report. So he gone undercover as a taxi driver for an afternoon. And his purpose was to find out his voters' real concerns. You know, and I can remember, imagine the passengers in his taxi. They would probably treat him as any old taxi driver. I mean, most of us Singaporeans, we have sat in uh, taxis before. And most times, you know, we sit in a taxi, we hear the taxi driver go on and on, and sometimes he's complaining against the government or something, and then we get kind of irritated, and then we kind of sing into your seats and kind of ignore him. But can you imagine if these people actually recognize that he was the Prime Minister of Norway, recognize from his photo that he's actually the PM, what would happen? As the PM, as the Prime Minister of Norway, he would have claims of authority over them. And the passengers would have responded to him differently, likely with greater respect, paying greater attention to what he says. And even if they get out of the car and he gets out to open the door, they will say, no, no, I'll open it myself. They would recognize who he is. And by recognizing who he is, this had claims over how they responded to him over how they responded to him. What about you, my friends? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a great teacher with good ethical teachings? Or is he a good and moral person, someone for us to model our lives after? Or is he a respectable religious leader with insightful ideas? Who you confess Jesus to be has claims over how he respond. And we see so far, Jesus is the Christ. The promised king come from God. So confess him as king. But Jesus is much more than that, as we see in verse 31 and following. So Mark continues to tell us in verse 31, And he, meaning Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Remember, we catch up with Jesus in this account after he heals the blind man at Bethsaida. And actually, if you understand how Mark does it, Mark often used stories in his, his, his records to explain one another. So if you actually recall what happened at Bethsaida, Jesus had to touch the blind man's eyes twice before he could see clearly. After the first touch, the blind man could see something, but everything was still blurry. It was only after the second touch, only then, that he could see clearly. And, you know, as I was looking at this, I was thinking, huh? Does this mean that Jesus was having an off day? Maybe his healing powers were not working so well that day. Maybe his healing powers function like kind of a battery where you need to plug it in, get charged before you can actually dispense healing. But no, not at all. 
Rather, Mark was actually setting the understanding for this portion of Scripture that like the blind men, the disciples' understanding of Jesus was also blurry. They understood some things, that Jesus was the expected king, but not what Jesus came to do. Even after Peter's confession, they still lacked clear understanding about the kind of king Jesus was and what he comes to do. They, like the blind man in Bethsaida, could not see clearly and they needed a second touch from Jesus. And it's at this point, this is when Jesus starts to teach and tell his disciples plainly and clearly, don't mistake that, plainly and clearly, that the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus makes a prediction that he must suffer. He must suffer. Be denied and put to death by the religious leaders and power brokers of the Jewish nation. He predicts the cross and tells his disciples of its necessity. The cross is not an option, but a have to do for Jesus in order for him to accomplish God's plan to rescue a people for himself. But it's only after the death of Jesus, then he will be vindicated. Jesus predicts that God will raise him up on the third day. And for the first time, the disciples hear this clearly. And you would think that the disciples, after being with Jesus for so many months and hearing this, they say, yes, Jesus, now we understand this was what you said all along. But no. Because what Jesus tells them goes against everything they had believed so far about the coming Messiah King. They were thinking, "Uh, Jesus, aren't you supposed to be a king come in triumph to deliver your people and set up your kingdom through military and political might? Instead of the crown, they were hearing about the cross. Instead of the crown, they were hearing about the cross. And Peter thinks it fit to actually correct Jesus. You can almost imagine you know, how foolishly bold Peter was. Peter walks up to Jesus, pulls Jesus aside, grabbing him and saying something like this. Jesus, what is this? all this talk about being killed? Saying something, uh, you know, what, 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 what do you mean by your gang killed? Why are you saying that you have to be killed? You have to get with the game plan. Let's set up a committee, like all good Baptists. Let's set up a committee, a war committee, and let's get, to, get, on, get on with delivering Israel. But Jesus, knowing that this was on the minds of all his disciples, turns to them, and right in front of them, he was doing this so that they could see that, scolds Peter. Jesus wants to correct their faulty views. Jesus, with strong words, scolds Peter, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. It doesn't mean that Peter is Satan, or that Peter is actually possessed by Satan. But rather, Peter is thinking solely in human terms. He thinks that you can get the crown without the cross. Peter thinks that you can process the kingdom without going through the cross. And by doing so, he 
he's actually telling Jesus the same things that Satan tempted Jesus with in the desert at the start of his ministry. Remember, uh, both Luke and Matthew record this account. We see Satan in the desert temptation, also trying to get Jesus to establish God's kingdom without going through the cross. So Peter, in essence here, says the same thing. And in this sense, he is speaking like Satan. And Jesus, in no uncertain term, rebukes him. The cross is a necessity. And the cross comes before the crown. We often think that we know stuff, but often we don't. You know, I, I drive a car, and you know, I kind of, you know, for drivers, when we use the car, we press on the brakes. And you think about it, probably in, the, in our lifetime of driving, we have probably used the brakes so often, we have probably pressed on the brakes to slow the car a gazillion times. And you would think that by using the brakes so often, you would understand how brake lights actually work, right? Since we use the brakes so often, we see the brake lights coming on, we, seem, we think we know how brake lights actually work. But it took a faulty circuit, which left my brakes light on yesterday evening. Yes, things happen when you're preparing for messages. And draining my car battery to make me realize I don't really know how it works. And as a typical guy, as a typical guy, uh, I fiddled the brakes and wires thinking that with my brains and determination, you know, I should be able to fix it. Uh, but nope. After two hours, two hours, the brake light was still shining stubbornly on me and I still had to complete my sermon. So I kind of had to ask a kind church member who came over and guess what? He came over, he looked at it, he twiddled, turned a few knobs and he fixed the problem in less than five minutes. This made me realize that even though I, I, I use the brakes often, I don't really understand something which I thought was so familiar. But isn't it the same for us Christians? Isn't it the same for you? After all, as Christians, we often talk about Jesus. It's part of our language. And has this Jesus talk become so familiar that we think we know Jesus truly and fully? Are we like the disciples who see Jesus, but we see him with a blurred vision? Do we have a distorted, unclear view of Jesus? Or worse still, we think we know who Jesus is, but we actually created an image of Him that is closer to who we want Him to be than who He actually is. If this is so, ask Jesus for a second touch and for Him to help you see Him clearly and recognize that the cross is central to who Jesus is. No cross, no Jesus. And what He comes to do Recognize what he comes to do and to embrace it. Jesus understands to accomplish his father's plans, the cross comes before the crown. So if our king is a suffering Messiah who goes to the cross for our sake, what does this claim make on us? We are to respond in discipleship. As followers of a suffering king, we as his disciples should be prepared to suffer as well. I'm sure many of you know of the teaching of an Eastern religion that is growing in Singapore that says in order to attain paradise, you need to deny yourself and deny your desires. 
And on the surface, the next portion of Mark seems to suggest just that, that you have to deny yourself. But is this what Mark actually means? Let's read Mark 8.34 carefully. 8.34 to 9.1 carefully. Mark writes, And calling the crowd with him, crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And going on to Chapter 9, verse 1. We often stop at the end of uh, chapter 8, but I believe this text goes to chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it, had come, after it has come with power. After Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah King, and Jesus' prediction of his crucifixion and death on the cross, Jesus actually gives a master class on what it means to be his disciple. And discipleship, as we see here, is based on the cross and motivated by the cross. Jesus calls both the crowd that was following him and his disciples, and he lays out his demands, Jesus' demands of ex- and expectations of discipleship. Jesus tells them, If anyone wants to be his disciples, they must deny themselves. He does not mean that his disciples are to deny something or some possession uh, that they they do themselves. But more fundamentally, rather more fundamentally, Jesus tells them to deny the self and all their self-centeredness and self-promoting ambition. And they are to take up their cross. The cross in Jesus' time is an instrument of torture and death. I mean, in modern days, the cross is often worn as a jewelry. We have ladies wearing it on their, around their neck. We think that it's something that is nice and beautiful. But in their original context, it's almost equivalent to our modern-day Singapore hangman noose, something we use to carry out a death sentence. And it's not a difficult situation like a stressful workplace or a difficult person like a grumpy mother-in-law or annoying friend. You know, oftentimes we say we, we carry our cross means to put up with an annoying mother-in-law. Sorry, I'm not saying that mother-in-laws are annoying because I say that's the wrong view of looking at it. You know, we think it's an annoying mother-in-law. We think it's a difficult situation. And we say, oh, we need to bear our cross, carry our cross. But it's not that. The cross means shame. It means rejection. It means death. Jesus' disciples must be prepared to deny themselves to a point of giving their lives, of experiencing shame and rejection. And when and finally, they are to follow Jesus. Jesus' disciples are to follow Him in this way. They are to be loyal followers of the King. They are to follow the teaching of their master, disciple-maker. 
And by doing so, when they lose their lives, their comforts, and their ambition for Jesus and for the gospel's sake, they will save their life. Almost paradoxically, when they try to save their life and cling on tightly to it, they will lose it. Jesus tells them, so what if you actually gain the whole world? You get everything you desire, but you forfeit and lose your soul. Your whole being is lost. This is not gain, and it does not benefit you at all. Your soul cannot be bought. It is precious and valuable. When you deny yourself, when you carry your cross and follow Jesus, you will be given the only life that counts. Life from God that comes as a grace gift. You will get the life purchased by Jesus through His work on the cross. And Jesus ends His call to discipleship with both a stern warning of coming judgment and a promise of future reward. Jesus warns the crowd and the disciples who follow Him. Uh, to, warns them that they need to follow Him. But if they don't, I, and are embarrassed and ashamed of Jesus and His teaching, especially in this sinful day and age where people seek after other counterfeit gods. When Jesus returns during His second coming, He will return to judge them. He will be ashamed of them and reject them. This is the certain outcome for those who reject Jesus. But there is also a promise. There's also a promise. Jesus tells His disciples there will be some who will see the kingdom of God in power and glory before they die. And this promise was literally fulfilled six days later when Jesus took Peter, James and John to a high mountain. There, Jesus was transfigured before them and appeared in His full glory. Peter, James and John see Jesus, the King of the Kingdom of God, in full resplendent glory. They caught a glimpse of Jesus crowned with glory. They caught a glimpse of Jesus crowned with glory. This was a glimpse of Jesus' glory, which He would be crowned with after His death on the cross and His resurrection, when God will exalt Him to His rightful place as King of the Kingdom. Like I said, if you want to understand Mark, Mark oftentimes uses stories to interpret one another and it sets the setting for one another. So you might be thinking, why, why this story? Why did Jesus give them this promise? It is to show His disciples that losing is gain. Losing is gain. You know, I grew up watching Michael Jordan play basketball in the NBA, so I just dated myself. And in my, in my opinion, he's the best basketball star ever. I know some basketball fans here will disagree, but I believe he's the ba best basketball star ever because he took the Chicago Bulls to a consecutive three victories, championship victories. Then he thought, um, maybe I should play golf. Then he took time off and he played golf for a while and he was a horrible, bad golfer. Then he said, okay, maybe I should go back to basketball. And he went back. And the very year he went back, he took the, M, uh, the Chicago Bulls to championship victory and for two years running after that. So he took that victory, three consecutive victories before his uh, golfing career and three after. And in order to read that level of skill, he has to spend long hours practicing, often long before his teammates arrive in the court 
and long after they leave. Jordan actually wrote the book titled For the Love of the Game. For the Love of the Game. My story. And in it, he expresses that the sacrifices he made for the game of basketball were no sacrifices at all. Denying himself, losing other opportunities for him was gain. He gained the opportunity to excel in the game he loved. He gained the opportunity to excel in the game he loved. Likewise, as disciples, when you lose your life, you gain Christ. Denying yourself does not only mean avoiding judgment, as many of us think. It means that you get to follow Jesus. You get to follow the one you love, Christ. Losing your life means you gain your soul and you gain the pearl of great price, the kingdom of God, where you will spend an eternity in joy in the presence of our glorious King, King Jesus. Jesus is our promised Messiah King who must suffer on the cross to rescue us from our sins. And He calls us to follow Him in discipleship. What then is your response as a disciple? Firstly, you need to know Jesus as both suffering Saviour and King. You need to know Jesus as both suffering Saviour and King. You need to confess Jesus as both Saviour and King. You can experience the forgiveness of sins made available through Jesus' work on the cross. And you can know Jesus as King, submitting to His loving, kingly reign in all of your life. This is a both end. The old saints got it right. This is trusting and obeying. There's no such thing as, oh, I get Christ as my Saviour and I'm going to live my life the way I want to without submitting to His kingly rule. As a Christians, we trust in Christ as a Saviour. We obey Him as King. And that is what it means to be a disciple. So, as Christians, all Christians are disciples. There's no such thing as Christians first and then being a disciple reserved for a higher class of Christian. As a Christian, you are a disciple. You are a disciple. You are to trust Jesus as your Savior and obey Him as your King. Secondly, as a disciple, you need to turn from self-rule to Christ's rule as you follow Jesus. You need to turn from self-rule to Christ's rule as you follow Jesus. And this involves a daily denying of self and following of Jesus. Even as Christians, we still have our remnant sin habits and a tendency to self-rule and to daily build our kingdom of self. And following Jesus means a daily turning away from ourself in the small decisions of life and a turning to Christ and Christ's root or way of life. So following Jesus involves thousands of daily small decisions in your life that honour Him as King. And this is what a disciple should do. As disciples, we daily make thousands of decisions that will honour Christ Jesus as our King. Thirdly, as a disciple, you need to embrace the cross before the crown. You need to embrace the cross before the crown. Do not be surprised by suffering. Do not be surprised by suffering. I know it's tough for us, even for myself, you know. In Singapore, we are often used to comfort. I mean, if I don't get my coffee on a daily basis, I go into withdrawal. I need all these comforts, you know. And to suffer seems very unusual for us as Christians. But do not be surprised by suffering. After all, we follow 
a crucified Messiah. And Jesus tells us it is the cross before the crown. Golgotha before glory. Suffering before reigning. When suffering comes, expect it and do not be ashamed of Jesus in this gospel. Lastly, you need to understand that to deny yourself and take up a cross is to gain Jesus. You need to understand that to deny yourself and take up a cross is to gain Jesus. You know, oftentimes when we look at this verse, like I said, we think it means to deny ourselves, to lose something. But we lose something in order to gain something of great value, which we cannot lose. That is Jesus Christ. Living the Christian life is not a life of stoic self-denial. We follow Jesus, the suffering King, and deny ourselves for the joy of gaining Christ. As Christians, you have to confess Christ, embrace the cross, lose your life for the sake of gaining Christ, the treasure of infinite value and joy. The cross before the crown. Jesus tells us the cross is a must, is a necessity. The cross displays the grace of God as it provides the entry into the kingdom of God through Jesus. It makes possible our following after Jesus and serves as the fuel and motivation for following Jesus. So glory in the cross. For it's through the cross that we get the crown and the joy of knowing Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ who is both our King and suffering Saviour. Lord, we thank you for this, the Gospel. I pray for all of us here that your words and this truth will dwell in our hearts and cultivate in us a love for Christ Jesus. Set our affections for Jesus and Jesus alone. Continue, I pray, to give us grace and wisdom as we, as a church, seek to know you more clearly and daily deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow Jesus. May your blessing and grace be upon us. In Christ's name, Amen.